uh, once a quarter to put on some kind of big, big event. It's because we want to create opportunities for people to encounter God and also to come together in community. So I just want to encourage you, after the service, stick around, grab some food, meet some people, have some fun, uh, and, and just see what God can do in your life through community. But this morning, I'm also really excited because the start of Harvest Fest means that it's the start of our fall series. And I'm really excited this year because I believe that God has given us a, a word that he wants to speak to his church this fall. That there's something he wants to do in our lives to transform us and to give us freedom from things that are holding us back. Because the reality is that in all of our lives, we all have things that, some, some things we know of that we just don't want to admit, but other things that we don't even know about. Things that are in our hearts, things that act as blockages in our lives that prevent us from seeing and receiving all that God has for us. And so this series, it was born out of a, a word that God gave us uh, back in, in March of this year. And it was this picture of a dam, the water dam, if we can throw that up. This picture of a dam bursting. And, and if you know anything about dams, you know that dams are, are really good at preventing flow. Like you build a dam because you want to stop water from going somewhere or you want to gather water. And, and, and a lot of dams really are just built to keep water in a certain place and out of other places. And some function to also produce electricity, and some function to control uh, rivers so that they don't flood, and some functions, there's a lot of different functions for them, but dams prevent flow. And as much good as a dam can do, dams can also cause harm. Because a dam, it produces a reservoir of water which will help provide water for people upstream. But in the midst of um, creating that reservoir, it also destroys some communities. It starts to thwart the natural ecosystem, the natural waterways, and, and takes, in giving water to one area, it takes water away from other areas. So dams are really useful, but they also have their problems. And, and at their core, a dam prohibits flow. And the problem with dams in real life is that in holding back water, they may be preventing certain issues, but causing others. And what we found, what I found in my life and what I've heard from other people as I talk to them is that often in our lives, we like to set up dams in our hearts to protect us from things. Sometimes it's a dam we put up to protect us from shame or to protect us from abuse. Sometimes it's a dam that we don't even know we set up, but it ca is caused by the pain in our past or by lies or fears that we have in our present. And, and, and we set up these dams to protect ourselves. But the problem with a dam is it's indiscriminate. It will hold back water, whether the water is good or bad. And so the image we got this year was that God wants to destroy the dams in some of our hearts. 
And he gave us this word that there's a pool of untapped resources in all of our lives, a pool of water, untapped resource in your life that God wants to use. And the only reason he can't is because you've set up a dam in your heart that has prevented that resource from being used within your life. And so for the next 12 weeks, right up until December comes and we go into Advent and then Christmas is around the corner and it's crazy how quick the calendar is moving, but, but before we get to Advent and Christmas, for the next 12 weeks, we want to start exploring this idea of living in freedom, of tearing down the dams in our, in our lives that are holding us back from the freedom God has for us and we're calling this series Unleashed. And really, the, the, our hope and our prayer is that through this series, God will do a work in your heart. That God will unleash you from the things in your past, from the shame in your past, from the addictions in your past, from the lies and the fears in your present that are holding you back from living the life he's called for you and he has for you. Because there is something in your heart, there's something that is available to you that God has called you to do. He has put such giftings in your heart. And sometimes we need to break through all of those things that are holding us back from what God has for us. And so through, throughout these 12 weeks, we are going to be looking at three key things we need to learn to address in order to live in the freedom God has for us. And that's first the promises that we need to believe. Because God has given us certain promises that we need to get into our hearts if we are ever to live fully unleashed and, and free within what he has for us. The problems we have to conquer, because, you know, we all have problems in, that we need to deal with in order to live in freedom. And the practices we have to master. But this morning, I want to kick us off with the first of four promises that we're going to be addressing over the next four weeks. And that is the promise that God has given us that you are loved. You are loved. It's this promise that tells us no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what other people have done to you, no matter what has happened in your life or how disqualified or broken you may feel or undeserving of his love you may feel, it's a promise that God has given us that he loves you. And nothing can change that reality. And maybe you're here this morning and this is a promise you've never heard of before. Maybe this is your first time in a church or your first time in a while and you've never heard this promise that God loves you no matter what. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to strap in because we're going to dive into God's love and it's crazier than you might imagine. But if you're here and, and you're like me and this is a promise that you've just heard your entire life going to church and whatnot, I believe that God wants to give you a fresh revelation this morning. Fresh revelation of his love for you no matter what, that he loves you. See, Romans 8.31, it's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. 
Book of Romans, my favorite book in the Bible. Chapter eight, my favorite chapter in the book of Romans. And then from about 31 to 40 or wherever it ends are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it says this, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And that's not a question. That's a statement of God's for us so nobody can stand against us. It says, he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered, which is to say we are suffering. We are following Jesus and it's not easy. We are suffering. Then Paul says, verse 37, no, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything, or nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's this love that is beyond understanding. This love that is beyond comprehension. This love that is reckless in its pursuit of your heart. It's this love that doesn't make sense. This love with which God pursues us through any shadows, through any darkness, tearing down walls, climbing up mountains just to find you. It's this promise we have that no matter what comes our way or what happens to us, you are loved. I am loved. But you see, the problem and the difficulty with this promise is often in our lives, things will happen to us that will cause us to doubt this promise. There will be things that happen to you in your life that make you wonder where was, where was God in that moment. There are things that will happen in your life that people will do to you that will make you feel unlovable. There's things that you will do that will make you feel ashamed and like you need to run and you need to hide. And, and God told me that, that, that there's people who are going to listen to this message who all your life you have lived in fear of punishment. As if if I just mess up one more time, God's going to smite me and God wanted me to tell you, that's not who he is. It's not who he is. He's first and foremost a father who loves his children. You are loved. No matter what. In John 4, we find this interesting story of Jesus where On his journey from one part of Israel, Galilee, to another part of Israel, Judea, 
he makes his way through this region that is known as Samaria. And the story goes that Jesus, he's just, he's just following God's will. He's going where God has instructed him to go, and he's going to teach and heal and do all of these incredible miracles in these different places. And, and he's making his way to Judea, and he comes through Samaria. And, and in the middle of the day when it's hot, he finds this well. And being tired from his journey, the Bible tells us that he sits at the well and his, his disciples go on ahead to the city to about a kilometer and a half away to try and find some food to eat. And Jesus is sitting at this well. And, and what happens in this moment is as Jesus is sitting at this well, a Samaritan woman comes up, which is really a Samaritan woman meaning a woman who lived in Samaria. It was her culture. And she comes to this well to draw water from the well, and Jesus sees her, and he says, verse 7, Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, there's a couple interesting things that are going on in this verse, in this moment, a couple contextual, cultural things that are really interesting to note. First of all, that Jesus, as a Jewish man, was speaking to the Samaritan woman. Because you see, in this day and age, and this wasn't written in like the Mosaic Law or anything, this was just a cultural taboo, but in this day and age, especially in more rural areas of Israel, it was considered improper for a man to speak alone in public with a woman who was not in his household. Don't ask me how dating would have worked or how you could have done business. I don't know. I don't know. It was just, that was just the practice. It was considered improper for Jesus to speak to her because she is a woman, they are in public, and she's not his family. And so it's interesting. Jesus sees her coming, and he doesn't hesitate to say, oh, no, no, I don't care. Will you give me a drink? But the second thing that's interesting in, in this passage is the timing, the timing of what's going on. If we go back to verse 6, it says, Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Notice, it was about noon. Now, I don't know about you, but in my experience, I used to work at a tree nursery, and in my experience, working around noon, part of, some of the, or part of the hottest time of day, is miserable. Like, I don't know, is any laborers, anyone working with their hands outside during the day? Any, can anyone vouch for me? It's miserable working around noon when it's hot out? Okay, a few people. Based on the context and where these people were in the time of year, it was likely between 28 and 32 degrees Celsius. So noon, not an ideal time to go to work. And I remember when I worked at the tree nursery, any time it got above 30 degrees, we were miserable. Miserable. I feel bad for the bosses because we didn't hide it very well. But it was like, it's above 30. Can we just go home and be done with this? And they're like, no. And like, okay, fine. You pay me. That's fine. Um, but hot day, around noon, miserable time to do heavy labor. 
And what's really interesting is, is from what we know of Jewish society and Samaritan society, is typically the women would go to the well in the morning. You know, after the sun had risen, but before it got too hot. So there was light, but it wasn't too hot. And they would go in groups talking and gossiping and, and all the way there and all the way back. And they would carry their jars of water back. And, and it's interesting just to note because this woman, for some reason, didn't go with the rest of the ladies. Instead, she waited not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but like six hours till it was hot, till people would be inside napping, till people would be just like avoiding the streets, till nobody could possibly be at the well, and then she goes to the well. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what her thinking is or what her reasoning is. But we can assume, based on what we're told, that likely this woman was being ostracized and rejected by the other woman. Likely she was being judged and condemned. Likely this wasn't an instance of she, she's like, oh, I'm an introvert, so I'm going to go on my own time so I don't have to talk to people, because not even introverts would put themselves through that kind of torture, right? Um, but likely this was a situation where she had been rejected by the other woman. And so in order to avoid their shameful looks and their judgmental comments, she waited till it was hot, till nobody would be around, and then she went to get her water. And the story goes, she's walking to this well. And I don't know how far away she was from the well when she realized, oh, there's a strange man sitting at the well. It's just a little weird. But she carries on and makes her way to the well, and she sees the stranger sitting there. And if I were her, I'd be like, please don't say anything to me. Please don't say anything to me. Please don't say anything to me. And, and she goes about her business, and then the man speaks up, and he says, give me a drink. And then the woman responds... Verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And then the author of the book of John gives us this really handy like footnote that tells us why this was a big deal. He says, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. So again, crazy things going on here. First of all, men don't typically speak with women who are not in their family in that culture. Secondly, it's noon. This woman shouldn't be out at the wells drawing water. It's the worst time of day to do it. But thirdly, we see that because she's a Samaritan, Jesus should not be interacting with her. And I'm not going to dive into the whole context of, of why the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. It's fascinating, but I can really sum it up with two brief stories. One was about 100 years before Jesus, the Jews had went and destroyed the Samaritan temple where they worshiped God. And two, the Samaritans, about 10 years before Jesus, had decided, well, we don't like the Jews, so they took corpses and desecrated the Jewish temple with corpses. Which led to them being banned from Jerusalem. Um, just gives you a picture of the hatred they had for each other. And, and the hatred was to the extent that, that Jews, when they wanted to go from Judea to Galilee, Samaria was right between them. And instead of going through Samaria, often they would take extra days to go around so that they wouldn't have to interact with Samaritans. 
They would avoid business dealings with Samaritans. They would avoid contact with Samaritans. And at the point of, that we see here, it was so severe that they believed that contact with a Samaritan would make them unclean, and that contact with something a Samaritan had touched would also make them unclean. So Jesus asking this woman for a drink would mean he would have to take hold of the jug that she gave him, which she had been holding, and drink the water that she had gathered, which would be a big no-no in that society. But despite all the reasons Jesus had to hate and despise and ignore and, 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 and judge this woman, he looks at her. He talks to her and he asks her for a drink. And she asks, why? You're a Jew. Why are you asking me for a drink? And, and, and he responds, verse 10. says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let's sum up here again. Jesus, hey, can you give me a drink? Why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You shouldn't ask me for a drink. Oh, well, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. Okay, Jesus. And, and then the woman carried, said to him, I love her response because I, I, I'm a very sarcastic and sassy person, and so I always just read that into the scripture. I don't know if that was how it was uh, intended, but that's just how I read it. And she's like, sir, you have no bucket. And the well is really deep. Where do you get that living water? It's like, sir, you just asked me for a drink. If you had water, why were you asking me for a drink? And if you had water, how did you get it out of this well? Did you like float down and carry it out with your hands? Like, like it's a valid question though. It's a deep, deep well, and Jesus had no rope, he had no bucket, and she's like, well is deep, where did you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty the water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming to this well here to draw water. And in this moment, we see this woman's desire. She's tired of coming to this well. She's tired of drawing water at this well. She's tired of making this journey around noon in the afternoon just to gather water outside of the gaze of judgmental people. She's like, Jesus, if you have better water, just please just give it to me. And Jesus, this is where the story gets really good. Jesus responds, verse 16. He says, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the man you are now with is not, not your husband. What you have said is true. Now I want to pause here for a second. Because it's really easy for us in our modern context 
to twist and read this scripture and really any scripture in general to fit our own narrative. It's really easy for us to read this scripture and judge this woman. Jesus saying, you have had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. I I know for a long time, I always read this as, wow, this woman, oh my goodness, she was really promiscuous and she just, she kept marrying men and then dumping them in order to go on to the next man. Like, wow, it's crazy. But, But really what's interesting with the context is that in this situation we see here, the divorce, the separation, the husbands that left her would not have been her fault. Quite simply because a woman had zero right in that day and age to actually divorce a man. The man had all the rights, thank God that's changed, the man had all the rights and the woman had no rights and they were subordinate and so if a man wanted to dump a woman for any reason, easy peasy, we'll do it. But if a woman wanted to leave a man, well you better hope that she can run pretty fast. And so we know from the context that this woman has had five husbands who have either died or divorced her. And I don't think it really matters which one it is because if they all died, well, nobody wants to hang out with the woman whose five husbands died. Does that mean that might all have been coincidence and accidents, but still, who wants to hang out with that person? I swear, they all fell down the stairs. Hmm. <laughs> or they left her. They abandoned her. They divorced her. And I, I tend to think that it's likely the second option. Because I can't imagine how much time it would take to marry, have your husband die, and then marry again, and have your husband die, marry again, and have your husband die. But the Bible doesn't tell us what. We just know that she had five husbands. And she is in a predicament now where the man she is with doesn't want to marry her. He's with her, but he doesn't want to marry her. And so really, what we see is she is this lost girl in search of her fairy tale ending, looking for a husband to take care of her looking for a family, looking for a husband with which she can bear children, and and all along the path in search of this love, in search of this fulfillment, in search of this family, she has been abused and abandoned to the extent that the guy she is with won't even marry her. And likely what we know based on the culture of the time is that this woman likely was barren. So what probably had happened was she got married once and been really excited, like, I'm going to have children, and then nothing happened, and so her husband left her. And she got married again, and maybe it was his fault, and, and, and nothing happened, so he left her. And then she got married again, and again, and again. And by the time that her fifth husband left her, I wonder if it had settled in. I can't have children. It's not them, it's me. And and now she is searching for love in the wrong place. She is searching for, for support in the wrong place and living in sin, living with a man who won't marry her. And in a small town like Sychar, this town where this happened, where she lived, news of her barrenness and her problems keeping a husband would have spread around very quickly. 
Because, you know, people like to gossip and tell stories. And, and so if five husbands left her because she was barren and wouldn't bear them children, well, that, that would have been pretty common knowledge. And to make matters worse, in a culture where everything was believed to be from God, whether a flower bloomed, they believed that it was caused by one of the gods, or, or an earthquake happened, well, it must have been the gods' anger. It was everything that happened, the sun rising, well, that was caused by the gods. They believed that everything was caused by, by a god. And so in that culture, her being barren would have been believed to be a punishment against her for either something her family, her parents did, or something she did. And so she is in this place where she has been rejected by society. She has been ostracized, likely because of something outside of her control. She can't have children. She can't control that. But, but she is being judged for it. And she's likely wondering, why is, why is God punishing me like this? Why has God abandoned me in this? She's thinking through the rejection, wondering when will this guy who's living with me and won't even marry me reject me too? Just believing the lie, I am unlovable. And really what we see is she's carrying this heavy burden. Both physically with the clay jar that was really, really heavy that she had to haul a kilometer and a half to, from the city to the well, then fill it with water, and then haul all the way back. But also metaphorically, the weight of loss, of rejection, of shame, and of judgment that was forcing her to come to the well in the middle of the day. And you know, it's the same weight that many of us are carrying that is keeping us from the freedom and healing that God has for us. It's the weight of being a little heavier as a kid than you want it to be that keeps you from being happy with who you are as an adult. It's the weight of, of being abused and abandoned by, by your parents that, that keeps you feeling inadequate and unappreciated. It's the weight of the shame you felt from the mistakes of your past, the pornography you dealt with last night, that you're like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but you still went back, the guys you've slept with. It's the weight of the shame that we feel doing things we know we shouldn't, but just needing to feel something. It's the weight of shame, rejection, of fear, condemnation, of inadequacy, and brokenness. And we carry this weight that we were never meant to carry and we just try to go through life pretending it's not there, trying to hide it. And this woman comes to Jesus and Jesus has every reason to ignore her, but he doesn't. He knows her past. He has every reason to judge her, but he doesn't. Based simply on her gender and her culture, he should be avoiding her and judging her as if she was unclean and, and a horrible person. But, but Jesus, in this moment, he sees her and he speaks to her. And he offers her something that she has never received before. And, and he says, I see your pain. 
I see your hurt. I see your shame. I see everything that you've done. I know what has happened to you. But I'm not judging you. Instead, I'm offering you a free gift, eternal life. I'm offering you my love. You know, this story reminds me of another story, this one in John 8. This one, a story about a woman that is caught in the act of adultery. And the religious leaders of the day, they seize her. And I always wonder where's the guy because they only take the girl, but you know, it takes two to tango. Um, But they seize the girl and they bring her to Jesus as he's teaching and they say to him, Jesus, what should we do to her? The law says we should stone her to death. What do you say? And, And Jesus ignores them. Instead, the story tells us that he begins to write with his finger on the ground, and eventually, uh, as they insist, Jesus says, you who has no sin should throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing on the ground, and slowly this crowd begins to disperse as they realize, oh, I'm not perfect enough to kill this person. And they leave and finally it's just this woman standing there with Jesus all alone and Jesus looks up at her and says, daughter, where's, where are those who accused you? Is there no one here to condemn you? And the woman says, no one, Lord. And he says to her, go then and be free from a life of sin. You know, the story is this beautiful encounter between a sinful woman who deserved judgment and Jesus, the all-powerful God who had received all authority from his Father and had the right to judge her standing there and loving her. And it reveals the unexpected truth that the safest place for a sinful and broken person is in the presence of of God. This adulterous woman had every reason to be judged. She had every reason to be ostracized. She had done something wrong. But in an encounter with Jesus, she discovered the truth that God wasn't interested in judging her. He was interested in loving her. In her brokenness, in her mess, in her shame, Jesus wasn't interested in telling her how awful of a person she was. He wasn't interested in laying it on her and telling her that you need to change. And in that moment, we see he, wants to, he wanted to tear down the dam that she'd built in her heart that caused her to look for love in the wrong place. He wanted to tear down the dam in her heart that caused her to feel ashamed and broken and worthless because of her actions. He was interested in tearing down the dam in her heart that made her feel unworthy, too broken, too deserving of judgment from God to be used by God. And he was interested in showing her his love. In her mess, in her brokenness, in her hurt, in her shame, He wanted to show her his love. And we see the same thing happening with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus isn't judging her. He isn't condemning her. He's showing her 
love. And, and what's actually crazy about the story is he goes a step further. Verse 25, he actually reveals himself to her and who he is to her. Verse 25, and up until this point, uh, they, they've been talking about where to worship God. And she's like, well, my people say on this mountain, and your people say in Jerusalem. And God's, Jesus is like, well, God is spirit, and he desires people to worship him in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter where you worship him. That's not the point of this. And, and, and as she's going through this, and they're having this conversation, he says, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, called, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And what's profound is this is the first time recorded in the Bible that Jesus reveals who he is to somebody. The 12 disciples who he's been hanging out with, two more years. Takes them two more years to figure it out. But this broken, lost woman out of wealth that he meets For the first time, he just shows her. And this woman who Jesus shouldn't have been talking to, the Samaritan who Jesus should have avoided, this woman who who had all of these reasons to, to be ashamed, who was used and abused and abandoned five times, who was ostracized and shamed by her people in her city. To her, to this woman, Jesus brings the greatest revelation, and through it, he sets her free. And we know this because the next thing we see the woman doing is she runs back to her town. She runs back to the people who've been judging her and shaming her and ridiculing her. She goes back to the city that around the people that she's been avoiding, and she goes to them and she says, I met this crazy man. Come, come see him. And through her testimony, this entire village comes to faith in Jesus. Because Jesus chose one broken, lost person, showed her love, and set her free. See, often in our lives, we will find ourselves in places and situations where we feel abandoned and ashamed and broken and distant from God. And, and the thing with shame is that it'll always make you feel worthless and broken and worthy of punishment. And it'll make you try and hide as if God was going to judge you. Many people just live their lives in fear of God. As if if I sin one more time, he's just going to smite me. But the reality is that no sin can separate you from God. His love is greater than that. The reality is that it doesn't matter what you've done or what others have done to you or what you believe about yourself. God's love for you is unconditional. And he proved it through the death of his son. See, the issue of your value, the issue of your shame, the issue of the punishment you deserve was all settled on the cross. To quote Rob Reimer, who wrote this excellent book called Soul Care, the series is loosely based on the book, but if you want to find freedom and you're really serious about it, we've got a Soul Care group launching in just a couple weeks. Grab the book, get involved, get into that. But in the book, he says this. He says, on the cross, the Father said to you and me, you are of infinite worth to me. I declare you to be worthy of my son's blood. 
which is to say, I am freely giving my son to you to die for you in your place, to take your shame, to take the punishment you deserve, to take the pain that you're feeling, and he's going to take that all upon himself and die so that you might be free. See, Paul said in Romans 8 again, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If while we were broken and lost and horrible people, Jesus still died for us, what more will he leave from us? See, nothing can separate you from his love. Not rejection, not failure, not shame, not pain, not abandonment, not people making fun of you, not your wife leaving you, not getting fired from your job. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from God's love. Not powers above, not demons, not the devil, not sin. Nothing, nothing can separate you from his love for you. Because all those things are powerless compared to the mighty power of God's love. You know, I've heard people say this before, but when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt with all of that. And he did it for all of us, but the reality that we see in Scripture is if it would have been only for one, if it would have been only for you, if he had known going up to the cross, I'm only doing this for one person, still done it because he loves you that much see often in life things will happen that makes us feel broken and ashamed and distant from God and often that shame and the pain in our past can make us try to run and hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden And we try to build these dams to hide our shame, to hide our, our, our pain. But we have to recognize that shame can't separate us from God. That pain can't separate us from God. Being abandoned can't separate us from God. Nothing that happens in your life can separate you from his love that he has for you. And if you get this, if you get this, you start to tear down those dams in your heart that are making you feel unlovable because of what's happened to you or because of what you've done. If you can get this revelation of God's love for you and tear those things down, it will set you free to not only live a better life and be a better person, but also free to encounter and receive all that God has for you. See, God's promise for you is I love you the way you are, brokenness and all. And there's some things in your life we'll work on. We'll get to them. But I love you first and foremost. And I will never leave you or forsake you. In a moment, we're going to go back into a short period of worship. And when we do, we're going to sing Reckless Love again. And as we do that, I just want to encourage everyone, as we sing those words, to declare them over your heart. To declare them over your life. To declare God's reckless love for you, even if you don't believe it, even if you doubt it, to declare it over yourself. 
But before we do, I, I want to give the opportunity for anyone who's in the room who has never encountered God's love before. Anyone in the room who has never made the decision to follow Jesus, to receive the free gift of his love and eternal life that he has for you. I want to give an opportunity for anybody to receive Jesus. See, Jesus took me from being a liar, cheater, debater, manipulative, manipulative, addicted to pornography, controlling. And he didn't make me perfect, but I'm progressing, and it's because of the love he showed me. Before I deserved it, before I did anything to earn it, the love he showed me. And through that love, get to work in me and to transform me, to reveal himself to me. So if you're here and you're saying, Darian, I've, I've never encountered God's love before. I've never made the decision to follow Jesus before, but I want to. In a moment, I'm going to count to three. And if that's you, all I want you to do is slip your hand up and put it right back down when we get to three. If I can get everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes, this is a moment between you and God. No one is looking around. No one is judging you. And even if they are, it doesn't matter if they judge you because God still loves you. But if that's you and you want to receive the free gift of God's love that he has for you and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, one, God loves you. Two, your life will never be the same. Three, if you want to receive God's gift of love, just slip up your hand and put it right back down. Come on, come on. Hands going up across the room. You guys can open your eyes. I just want to say to those of you who made that decision this morning, you just joined a group of about 50 people that we know of so far this year who have made that decision to follow Jesus. We're so proud of you. But more importantly, God is proud of you. The Bible tells us that whenever one child comes home, heaven throws a party. He is so excited. He goes after the one. He seeks after the lost. And when the lost is found, he is so, so excited. So if you made that decision this morning, I just want to encourage you, don't leave here today without letting someone know. Whether that's somebody that you came with, whether that's somebody on our staff team, we're going to have a prayer team down at the front here in just a moment, whether it's telling one of them. Don't leave here without letting someone know because we'd love to partner with you and support you in that. If I can call the prayer team forward as everyone stands. We're going to go into song Reckless Love. And as we do, I just want to encourage everyone who is here. If your habit is to leave right now, don't. I just want to encourage everyone who's here to sing this song. Declare it over your heart. Declare it over your life. Declare the truths that it portrays and demonstrates over yourself. And the reason we have a prayer team here this morning is because I know there's some people here who 
you felt so distant from God that you're just in need of a fresh revelation of his love. And our prayer team this morning, if you need healing or anything, they'd love to pray for you for that as well. But if you are in need of a word from God or a revelation of God's love for you or how he sees you, don't hesitate to come down. Because these people would love to reveal God's love to you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are the God who loves. That you are the God who loves me and you love everyone equally. I thank you that there's nothing we could do to separate us from your love. That your love is unconditional. It's not like the love we might have experienced from friends or family or, or partners who left us, but it's unconditional. And that it will never leave, it will never forsake us. It's always in pursuit of our hearts. Father, I pray that you will reveal to us, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you are speaking to us now, Lord. That we will come into an encounter with your love this morning. I pray this in your name.